You're listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SCR. Flex and Herds here with your Murder Mystery World Tour. And it is our final week with The Sign of the Four, which Herds has assigned to me and I have had to solve. And we are covering chapters 10 to the end today. And Herds, I want to let you know I have had an absolute blast with this novel. I'm glad you have. This novel is a weird one. Uh, when I I decided, you know, that I had to put, I had to shoehorn a Sherlock Holmes story in here somewhere because he's so well known. Uh, he is arguably, you know, I'm going to say definitively the most well known uh, detective fiction uh, detective, you know, ever. Uh, certainly in the Western world, I knew I had to find the perfect Sherlock Holmes uh, uh, murder mystery. Let's say uh, I was excited to reread this novel, though also it's not much of a mystery. No, absolutely not. I think it, it can kind of, as a modern reader, lead you astray to think of Agatha Christie and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle as part of the same genre. Because you could say, yes, they're detective fiction, yes, they're murder mystery, but Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's works, as you can clearly tell from The Sign of the Four, are far more about the swashbuckling adventures of Sherlock Holmes and John Watson than they are at all with the mystery. The uh, the murder mystery is more used as a framing device to kind of g- give us a reason to catapult Sherlock Holmes and, and Watson's story forward so that we can have a boat chase through the River Thames and a story about cowboy Utah people. And then at the end of this story, uh, we, we go back to uh, British colonized India and have a story about treasure and rajas and merchants trying to seek asylum and like political drama. It's, it's insanity. Like, the things that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle puts into what he's advertising, I I guess, as a murder mystery is more of an excuse for him to write two, well, I I suppose it's two halves of two completely separate books, if that makes any sense. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that that's kind of one of the great charms of the original Sherlock stories, like, especially when you look at modern adaptations and how uh, Professor Moriarty has become this bigger-than-life arch-nemesis for Sherlock, it actually speaks, I think, more to the books than most people take it to be. When you ask most murder mystery fans, they go, oh, well, you know, Moriarty was only a character in a couple of the books. But if you look at the way that these stories are written, the way that they're swashbuckling adventures, the way that it's about dueling intellects rather than it is about an actual mystery, you can see that this franchise is just hankering for a villain, which is why Moriarty has been so escalated in modern reinterpretations of Holmes. It's definitely looking for that character drama uh, and that that push forward, I think, that uh, the, the modern fiction, modern uh, kind of crime fiction in particular, um, tends to grasp onto. You often have like this very clear protagonist, very clear antagonist. Um, it's all about you know chasing, like chasing the person down who's done the murder, rather than trying to figure out you know which corrupt police chief do we need to go after today. It's like no, there's a corrupt police chief. We need to deal with them. You know that that's very much the Sherlock Holmes style thing. Like literally the the entire this book uh, immediately after the you know the chapter where we actually get the murder. Sherlock Holmes figures more or less everything out and we are following him putting on disguises and getting in a, well, off screen, getting in a bar fights, obviously. And, and, you know, going on boat chases. 
uh, and it's it's very clear that Jonathan Small is our bad guy. Uh, they are the person that we are trying to chase down. Um, although, of course, uh, as as we have to have with these novels written by, you know, old-timey British white people, uh, it, it can't just be that Jonathan Small is the, uh, well, murderer at all, uh, which is one of those fun little details there. We actually find out uh, that it was his compatriot Tonga who has the hellhound, you know, with the disgusting face and the hideous eyes and the sharp teeth. Whose only sin seems to be being ethnic. Yes. It's so bad. Like, the way that they portray this. Look, we harp on this a lot with our older murder mysteries, but the way that Jonathan Small, when we get to his confession, he says, I I got in the room after Tonga and I saw that he had killed Sholto and and he looked very pleased, like he'd done something really great, you know, because you know how much those ethnic people love their murder. That's right. (laughs) And I, I beat him, like, oh. It's something that we uh, should criticize, as we say every time this pops up on the show, uh, but it's something we just we need to acknowledge. This is part of old-timey books. Uh, there, there'd be racism. Be careful. Um, although I will say, uh, in, in Murder Mystery in particular, there is a certain stereotype uh, that all you know Murder Mystery characters are British, so I'd say it rounds back around. That, that does a bit as well. I think the other thing is when we look at, for example, uh, Knox and Van Dyne and looking about how it shouldn't be, you know, the Chinaman, it shouldn't be the obvious you know, racially profiled suspect that ends up being the culprit. I think that it is very likely that it was the pre-Christie era that led to the way that uh, the way that Ronald Knox wrote that rule about the Chinaman, because it is so obvious that Tonga was just thrust in here so that the British man could still be innocent and right. You know, if you removed him entirely from the story, it makes no functional difference. I mean, we shouldn't even give it that much credit of being, ah, it was the Chinaman all along, because the Chinaman doesn't do anything in this story. Like, they're not even a suspect. It's not even that, like, there are a bunch of suspects and it was the Chinaman that did it. It's just there are a bunch of suspects and then there's also there's also a Chinaman, and now they must be the villain. Um, and then the same thing is true for our flashback, which, again... I respect the fact that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has improved upon his previous work by making that explanation of the crime a lot shorter in this one, which is good. Uh, But uh, even in the flashback, Jonathan Small doesn't actually do anything heinous. Uh, Well, I mean, he does, but he doesn't he doesn't kill the man. Um, We're introduced to this whole subplot about how it's the uh, Indians versus um, versus the, the colonists, British empire and all these poor rich white people are getting murdered and it's very tragic um and (laughs) jonathan small is put in charge of guarding a gate with a couple of sikh mercenaries basically um and they say oh well there's this rich merchant or merchant who's been you know given a bunch of treasures and riches by this this rajah who wants to like hide his money with the british and so if the british win then he'll go to the british make him money back and if the British are beaten by the Indians, then he'll say, hey, Indians, thanks for keeping my money safe. It was really great of you to liberate that. So either way, he gets his money back with this whole like plot um, involving involving his riches. But these two Sikhs say to, to Jonathan Small, we have a third of our buddy, and this is the four. This is the four on the side of the four. We have another buddy who's traveling with this merchant who's you know transporting these treasure goods. Uh, we want to axe him. We want to just off him. You're either with us or you're against us. Are you in... Uh, <laughs> and Jonathan says, you know what, as long as I don't have to kill anybody, I'm, I'm totally down for that. Um, and he doesn't, I mean, he, he does cripple Ahmed when Ahmed is like panicking, like, oh no, I'm being murdered by a bunch of Sikh people. What do I do? Please help me. And then Jonathan like whacks him in the legs. Uh, but he doesn't actually deal the fatal blow. So it is, 
telling that even in this entire story that is more or less set in Britain, like none of the British characters are murderers. They're all either accidentally nearby when a murder occurs or they're complicit, but nobody is really judged for that. Uh, The the crime that Jonathan is really put away for at the end of the novel is for stealing the treasure, um, which is such a weird, like it's pre-Golden Age detective fiction, obviously, but it is a very weird conclusion for me to summarize the story and say, well, this ex-convict British gentleman with a peg leg <laughs> like turned up in an old man's room one night and spooked him and then said, I'm going to steal his treasure. And now he's been locked away just for that and nothing else. That's right. He was locked away for being scary. And is there any greater crime? No, definitely not. <laughs> in a murder mystery novel, no. Yeah, I will say that all of these scenes, as weird and as like out of the standards of the genre we're familiar with, they are... So many of them are just great fun, and the way that they're described is so vivid and energetic, you you kind of forget at times that you're actually just going through an explanation. And I think that that's one of the reasons that this book is still so worth reading, despite all of its obvious flaws, is that it has such a great, uh, a great mastery of using its own pacing to create energy in really what is just a, a book like... A textbook reading. As I said, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is, he's trying to illustrate this, this story that he obviously has in his mind about a treasure that was lost and these like, all this uh, backstabbery and, and conniving and how, how uh, Jonathan Small is inevitably betrayed uh, suddenly and inevitably by, by Major Sholto. Um, and he gets away with all the money. Mm-hmm. This is obviously uh, an entirely separate novel I think that uh, that the the Doyle you know wanted to tell, uh, but he he didn't have a way to lead into it. He wanted to set the stakes of the story before having the story. I, I will counterpoint this, and I'll give a mild, very mild spoiler uh, spoiler warning for Miss Fisher in the Crypt of Tears here. Oh boy! In that, if you actually look at the plot of that movie, it very much parallels that same structure, but it's flipped it so that it does it the normal murder mystery way. And I think that it's actually more compelling the way that Arthur Conan Doyle does it, because I think that the the reveal that you get at the end of the Crypt of Tears isn't as satisfying as just going on an adventure is in this story. Um, I think that it's interesting to look at Sir Arthur Conan Doyle compared to uh, the LaRouge case and the detective stories that preceded him. Because if you look at them, and we covered the LaRouge case on the show, and you can get that on the podcast if you're interested on all of your favorite streaming platforms there. It's interesting that uh, it's interesting that the LaRouge case is actually way more of a Golden Age-style murder mystery than Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who actually succeeded it. And I think that in some ways, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is kind of this black sheep of early detective fiction who's more of a forefather to modern crime fiction than any of the Golden Age itself was. I definitely think that uh, what it comes down to is that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's works uh, have a much stronger mainstream appeal. And I think that interests, uh, speaking from a, you know, a market perspective, I, I think that the interest generated by 
his stories is what allowed the like golden age detective uh, golden age to, to thrive initially, you know, that's what sparked people's imaginations. And they said, well, what if we focus more on the puzzle and make it something that's, that's, you know, solvable. Yeah. Because people wanted to feel like Sherlock themselves, having seen Sherlock be so unstoppable through all of these books. For sure. The, the question is, can I be like Sherlock Holmes, right? That's the fantasy um, that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle establishes with, with these stories um, and that we are then able to explore in the works that are created after, which I find to be very interesting. Um, it makes me wonder if uh, perhaps the the more modern adaptations of, of Sherlock Holmes, this is a big, big brain thought, but what if the uh, modern adaptations there with Rob Downey Jr. Uh, paved the way for movies like Knives Out, which have a much more uh, traditionally thought you know, Golden Age Detective feeling to them. That is a that is a very interesting thing I hadn't considered. Actually, well, thank you. You know, that kind of makes sense. I I don't think that it is quite as linear because obviously the pervasive image of Christie and of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and their successes has always been present. It's not like it was specifically you know BBC Sherlock and the uh, and Elementary and the Robert Downey Jr. series that necessarily like kicked it off. But I think that that resurgence is going in a similar pattern where we've had the unstoppable Ubermensch detective uh, who then leads into the uh, actual do-it-yourself, you know, come along and solve the mystery type things that we're seeing more of a resurgence of today. Like, for example, what we spoke with uh, with Peter Swanson on the show a few weeks ago. The inherent kind of response you're going to have to the sorts of works such as the Sherlock Holmes movies um, is that lots of fans of that movie are going to find criticism with it. Um, They're going to look into other murder mysteries and see, you know, what that movie does well, what it does poorly. One of the things it actually does very poorly is actually set up a cohesive mystery to be solved. Um, It is a bit of a mess in that regard. But that is, of course, what leads to directors and to fans of of the show even um, wanting to dig up that old material. So it creates a kind of a prime moment for new works uh, that can give you, you know, that itch that, that Robert Downey Jr. movies couldn't scratch, that they can kind of rise up in that space there. Actually, the interesting thing that I've just realized here is I normally say on this show that I think that the best works out there are the works that inspire you to check out more things in their field. <laughs> uh-huh. And normally I say that as, you know, a tribute to the good qualities of a story. But I think what we've kind of realized here is that it's the faults in this stories that are inspiring people to check out more of the genre. And that is why it is such an influential piece, which is a really interesting thing I hadn't considered before this discussion. I, I have to say it's a phenomenon that I'm, I'm pretty well acquainted with. If you, uh, <laughs> if you, as, as a young child, you know, you watch a lot of, uh, you know, cartoons, you know, you watch a lot of fun cartoons about, you know, turtles kicking butt or, you know, dudes playing card games and saving the universe or whatever. And you say, well, this is, this is cool and all. Um, I, I tend to find that you have two kind of polar reactions to it. Either one, you say, this is really cool. I want to see more of this exact thing. You know, I want to see more of the, the Ninja Turtles and the Yu-Gi-Oh's. Or you say, I want to see something that deconstructs this or that criticizes this. I want to see some smart media uh, that takes these genres that I'm familiar with, in our case, murder mystery, uh, and really plays with them. Um, and that's very much a cycle that we see in in 
in all genres, really. Yeah, I, I think it, it's also very indicative of what uh, things are for the indie creator, where, you know, you get to see them grow and develop. But you, we don't really think of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle that way because he is the guy that wrote Sherlock. For sure, for sure. Anyhow, Herds, we are going to take a quick pause before we get into a discussion of the quote-unquote mystery in this story? Was it fair? <laughs> Find out. It's a big mystery to us as well. <laughs> You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds, and we'll be back with that in just a second. You're listening to 2SER. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds here discussing the sign of the four on your murder mystery world tour. We are at the end of the story and we are going to quiz ourselves on whether Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's iconic tale was fair by our normal standards. And actually, Herds, I don't think we covered it so far this episode. Do I get points for this? I mean, you solved it like you didn't waver from the path that Sherlock Holmes laid down. So... Here's the deal. I either had to give you points for just going along with it and and not getting sidetracked by my own shenanigans uh, with, with the twin setup, which was not paid off, which I'm very sad about. But uh, or uh, I, I would just give no points, and I didn't think that was very fair. So you will receive two points uh, for successfully uh, avoiding being bamboozled by myself. Well, thank you, thank you. I will say that the proviso that I slid under the table to Herds last week was that uh, in the BBC adaptation of this story, there is a particular character who is revealed as a bit of a twist at the end, and I, I, it's it's similar to this story, but it wasn't so similar that I thought the note under the table was going to come in. So I will I will not relinquish that second point, but I will let you know, Herds, that it was it was close to being relinquished. It's all right. I think it's. I think it's fine. I think you've earned your two points uh, for this book, and you could walk away satisfied and knowing that it was a job well done. And you can take credit, much unlike Mister Sherlock Holmes. There, <laughs> poor guy. Yeah. Now, I think that when we get into this mystery, obviously we've discussed the whole Chinaman thing in the beginning of the show, and that already just smashes, knocks out the window. And I'll, I'll bid, bid ye farewell, Father Ronald Knox. Um, I, I think. The interesting thing about this story is if we were to look at it without Sherlock describing everything that has happened, are there enough clues to actually get along and solve it? Because I think that's the only way we can measure it using our, I guess, standard quote-unquote scale. One of the very kind of poorly done things uh, by our modern murder mystery standards is that the the criminal is mentioned. Like, there's the sign of the four, and there are the names next to the sign of the four, but the characters of Jonathan Small and, you know, the real murderer, Tonga, and we don't meet them until we're already capturing them. And Tonga is not mentioned until after he's dead. So, like, it's... Not to mention him being mentioned after he's dead isn't so much a revealing of the culprit so much as it is a revealing of what the British were like at the time. I mean, this is true. I I, I concede that point. Anyway, let's, let's not repeat ourselves, though. Let's not repeat ourselves. <laughs> not too much. Because I think that, obviously, we do have the sign of the four introduced at the start of the story, as you say. It does feel a little obvious because it's three, you know, ethnic people and Jonathan Small. So in the idea of the British mystery novel, the only person who could go toe-to-toe with Sherlock Holmes himself has got to be the British individual. It's terrible. And, like, it's, it's difficult to call it fair because I think that it is fair to a fault, 
I think that it is very easy to go along and solve this mystery. There are so few characters introduced that it is nigh on pointless to even try at certain times. I do like that we still kind of get deconstructions of crime scenes. We do arrive and we do, do get to think like, oh, what's happened here? Oh, where's the boat gone? What have they done with the boat? There are still questions. There are still puzzles. And some of them Sherlock doesn't even solve immediately. For example, he doesn't uh, for a little while figure out that the treasure has been dropped at the bottom of the Thames. I think that those things are enough of a puzzle and have enough of a clue that I could say that just on a flat base level, the mystery is fair. I think this would be like calling the floating admiral fair, in that there is an answer, and you could achieve it, and there are clues along the way, but it's not really worth it. The clue or the puzzle that kind of stuck out to me the most was the clues that we get as the culprits who've come in. Like, we find that there is a peg leg that has been at the scene of the crime, and we find that there are small footprints. Um, and so, like, there are so few answers that make sense to me. I'll actually kind of disagree with that because we really? do have it prefaced that uh, the treasure was being stored in the roof in an earlier discussion with Thaddeus. So that at least does set up some premise for how uh, Tonga was able to break into the house through that hole in the roof where the treasure was stored. I have no problem with the hole in the roof. I totally agree with you. Like, the problem I have more is that when they get up there and they say, ah, there are these little tiny footprints. And I'm like- Right, okay. What does, like, what does that point towards? In Like, we eventually, it is revealed to us that the tiny footprints mean, ah, it's an islander, of course. Uh, what else, what other explanation? Who else would have tiny feet? I don't know. <laughs> I was really hoping, Herds, I was really hoping that it was going to be that he had some, like, brilliant child genius accomplice or something like that. I was quickly let down as soon as the dart was introduced. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? Is that there's a dart and clubs and tiny feet. Like, theoretically, looking back on the story, it has to point to an islander, and that's what Sherlock Holmes kind of deduces. But I think that such specific clues, like, it's not like, you know, the door was locked and three people had the key, and who could it be amongst those three? Like, it's not a clue. Like, those are the kinds of clues that I enjoy puzzling out, because then you can, like, read back on the testimonies and see where the key might have been, like, passed from person to person. Are they all in it together? Are they all, like, the clue is just, there's a club and some darts and tiny footprints. It's an islander. Like, there is no other real conclusion you would reach and the way that Sherlock reaches it is due to his own kind of world knowledge yes. rather than really any murder mystery deductive uh, sense. Having having bid Knox farewell, I'll bring him back in here because that is an example of one of the, the greatest sins that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle commits against Father Ronald Knox, and that is that the detective must not light on any clues which are not instantly produced for the inspection of the reader. That is what Sherlock Holmes does. That <laughs> is, is his, his character. character. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> it's the problem, isn't it? That it's his defining feature and that he, you know, has these like, ah, oh, yes, I've, I'd already f I'd figured everything out to a T and now I deduce everything instantly, not giving the reader an opportunity to actually like perceive like like to learn from the clues and follow along which if we as we've said is not the point of the novel but it is a true thing i think probably the way that i would summarize the mystery in this story herds yeah sure is flex are you familiar with the animated lord of the rings series uh more or less yes why this story is to i would say proper murder mystery 
what the animated Lord of the Rings series is to the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings series. That is a very that is a very interesting comparison. Because the, the animated series, the animated series is an absolute hoot. It is heaps of fun. There's musical numbers. There's side stories. Where there's a whip, there's a way, my dude. That's just how it is, Flex. It is an excellent song. It is an excellent song. <laughs> it's like that. Sherlock Holmes is the musical-inclusive, animated, goofy, fun side stories version of Lord of the Rings, where the upper echelon of murder mystery as we know it these days is the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings. It's the one with compelling character dynamics. It's the one that actually pieces apart, I think, the best parts of the unique aspects of crime fiction, where Sherlock Holmes really is only crime fiction as a framing device. It's a very interesting comparison. Not not one that I would have picked. Uh, I do enjoy the old, uh, especially the, the old animated Hobbit movie. That is a that is a a weird <laughs> a weird gem. And unlike the Lord of the Rings, actually included many many songs in the in the novel. Uh, but yeah, I I think that's a very interesting way of putting it. I I I don't know if I one hundred percent agree with you, but I definitely think that there is a lot of a lot of heart in uh, in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's depiction of Sherlock Holmes here. Like he clearly loves the character. Uh, I I want to give a shout out. Uh, we've been talking about you know the mystery itself because I want to tell you in the second part of, uh, of 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 the show, I was deliberating on whether to include uh, a chapter chapter nine, I believe it is, where Sherlock Holmes has his disguise. And honestly, I I decided to because I realized it doesn't add anything at all to the mystery. Mm. It doesn't give you any clues. It is just Sherlock going away for a while, coming back and having a goof. And I think that that kind of genuine charm that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is trying to build upon his character, I, I think that reflects really well. I, I think that you're absolutely right. It's interesting that you say that he loves the character here because- he is famous for killing off Sherlock Holmes and then basically due to audience demand bringing him back because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle himself had gotten so tired of the character. And I think that if you were to continue reading the Sherlock Holmes series from this point, it would be very interesting to see if that was as reflected in the text as his enjoyment of the character is in the early stories. I mean, he's clearly enjoying, um, and I, I can appreciate this as an author, he's enjoying pushing his character to his absolute limits uh, with, you know, Sherlock Holmes's like drug problem and like seeing what the vast, you know, ends of his intellect are and that sort of thing. Also, we haven't actually talked about this at all. We've neglected to mention Watson, despite being the best character. He actually has a character arc. Um, I Like, again, showing love to your characters. Um, it's clear from the minute that Watson says, oh my goodness, this Mary Mawson, I could just die for her. And he says, oh no, the only problem is that there's this treasure she's going to get. From that moment, I knew that she was not going to get the treasure. Absolutely. The tragedy that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle could have played on Watson here is very obvious in that she gets the money and he doesn't get the girl. And he's all mopey and she's like, oh, and now I have the treasure and now I'm going to descend into greed and avarice and shame and become a murderer. Yeah. Which, honestly, if I didn't know going in, that's what I thought was going to happen. We get a good ending for Watson. He gets the girl, he gets away, he has a, a good old time. And I can tell that even though uh, Strathcairn Doyle is pushing his characters, he's pushing Watson's 
love for Mary and he's pushing Sherlock Holmes's cocaine habit and all this f- fun stuff, he still like cares about his characters and wants them to have a, a, a good ending, um, which, you know, obviously that changes over time. Um, and authors always want to uh, like, you know, there's an expression, kill your darlings. That's something that just has to happen eventually. I will say though, Herds, the reason, the reason I have chosen to neglect Watson in this discussion is because we are not done with him. Oh, we're not done with him? We are not done with Sir Watson, no. Oh. Herds, next week on the show, we are going to be taking another leap to the world of the screen. Is it time for the Robert Downey Jr. movies? Well, Herds, I think what we should do, because okay. in case the audience has not noticed over the past few weeks, we've had a couple of missed spots with guests. We've had a couple of, you know, different segments because we are currently not in studio. We are locked out due to uh, the virus crisis that is going on at the moment. It is actually March at the moment. I will say that we are breaking the fourth wall. We are recording the show ahead. Look, I'm at home. It's nice and comfy here. I got a blanket on. I think, Herds, a movie night is in order to ride out this crisis. So we are going to be doing a three-part special on adaptations of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's work. We're going to start next week with season one of the BBC version of Sherlock. We are then going to continue on with the US series Elementary. I'll tell you which episodes uh, in next week's episode. And then finally, in the third part, we will finally get to your blessed Robert Downey Jr. Yes! Uh, I can't wait. Uh, for you out there, do you know where uh, we can watch the BBC Sherlock series? I will not say where because it will vary based on where you're listening. I know in Australia, you can use an app called Just Watch to check what streaming services it is available on. Uh, internationally, that may that may vary for you if you're listening elsewhere in the world, but do check it out. We will, uh, well, actually, I think by the time this airs, we will have already done it, but we are going to do a watch party. So keep an eye on our social media channels for any more of those in future. We will have posted about them and you can join along with us Thank you very much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It has been a pleasure getting through The Sign of the Four by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. We will see you with our movie specials over the coming weeks. Herds, enjoy your quarantine. Flex, I'm enjoying having a blanket on me while recording. This is the best. <laughs> this is my favorite part of quarantine. Uh, alrighty. This is Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. You're listening to 2SER 107.3, and we will see you next time. Bye.